Richard Florida is a professor in Toronto, and he's written a number of best-selling books uh, regarding management, and particularly uh, regarding urban planning and how cities attract and keep social capital. And in one of his probably most popular books, it's called Who's Your City? And there's a section in there called The Open City, that one of the things that people value, that the creative class, he calls it, value about cities is that they're open, that they have permeable boundaries, that they're open to uh, different ways of thinking, different perspectives. And he uses Portland as the prime example of an open city. He interviews a lady uh, named Gwen Seymour, and she's a French expatriate who's lived in New York City but is settled now in Portland very deliberately. She wants to be here because she knows that she doesn't fit anywhere else. (laughs) She's lived in these great other cultural capitals, but she feels most at home and most comfortable in Portland. She self-admits that that she dresses very strange. She dresses sort of like a hobo, but she's accepted, and people smile at her. They look at her in the eye, and they don't, don't laugh at her, but they laugh with her. They're in on the joke that anyone can fit in in Portland. Now, Florida, Richard Florida cites this openness as an explanation of why so many independent bands have moved to Portland after they've reached a certain level of fame. And he uh, quotes Taylor Clark of Slate Magazine, says, they are attracted by its openness, their, its creative vibe, its aesthetic character. You can venture into public dressed like a convicted sex offender or a homeless person, and no one looks at you askew. People are coming to Portland, among other things, because of its openness, because it's permeable, because people are accepted, even if you're very weird. No one should feel weird in Portland. Well, maybe pastors should feel weird. I feel kind of weird in Portland sometimes. But... Weird is the mainstream in Portland. And it's one of the beautiful things about cities is that weird people, people that are weak socially, people that are outcast, people that don't have capital can move to the city and be accepted. They can move to the city and feel safe because there's other people just like them. And it's a beautiful thing about being a church in the city because we have easy access to these types of people. We have easy access to people who are needy, people who have come to escape something from their past, people who are coming to look for greater acceptance. Those who are cultural, social, economic, religious outsiders, these are the people that are moving to Portland. So the question for us this morning is, will they be embraced by in-town? If they've come looking for an open place, Will they find an open place here? Will they find an embrace for who they are? We're going to look at a passage where God's people were forced to consider these very questions. What does it mean to live in a city whose central foundational values are very different than yours? What does it mean for you to live, for, for, not for yourself, but for those who inhabit the city? For you to say, I'm not here for myself, but I'm here for those people, for those people who are seeking refuge. I'm here for the weak. I'm here for for the weird person, even if I'm not all that weird or quirky. Now, three things come up in this passage. The, The perils of living in a city like Portland, or in this case, like Babylon. 
the perils, the plan that God has for his people as they inhabit great cities, and the power, the power to live with convictions in a place that doesn't share your more foundational values. So perils, plan, and power. Haven't done an alliteration in a while. I thought I should. Now, as I prepared, over and over, this is what came out, that there are basically two agendas operating in this passage. There's the agenda of the Babylonians, and there's the agenda of the false prophets. And the first one we would call uh, the assimilation agenda, that Babylon has taken over Israel. And there's a number of different ways that you take over someone. You can occupy the people on their turf, Right? You can go and occupy their land, but you always run the risk of there being an uprising. And the people still retain their resources. They know the lay of the land, so it's not really strategic to do that. The second one is you can just enslave them. You can take all their resources, but that tends to make people really upset and mad, and they hate you, and there's more of a chance that they're going to uh, instigate a, a resurrection. What the Babylonians did was a third way, something altogether different. And what they did is they told all of the uh, social capital, the creative class of the city, come to Babylon, and you can live here. We'll let you retain who you are, but we want you to come. We'll give you jobs. So they they took the artisans, the craftsmen, the, the rulers, those who had wealth and education and status. And basically what Babylon did is we're going to exploit Israel. We're going to say, come, and we'll give you wealth, we'll give you status, we'll give you a place to live. All you need to do is come and adopt our values. All you need to do is come and become one of us. This is the path of assimilation, where they are trying to make sure that Israel, this occupied people, loses their cultural heritage, loses their religious heritage, loses who they are as a people. And you see this as a challenge to immigrants everywhere, right? How do people come to a foreign land and retain a sense of who they are, retain their background, retain their values in the midst of a society that perhaps doesn't share them? And oftentimes what happens is immigrant communities cluster. They they tend to enclave in order to keep those values. And there's this constant tension because they don't want to over-assimilate to the culture. They don't want to lose their identity and become just like everyone else. Now notice this. This is important. What did Babylon want them to assimilate to? Babylon wanted to take away their cultural and religious heritage by, hear this, offering them wealth and status and achievement. You see, often when Christians think about the larger culture, when they think about the perils of the city, they focus on the obviously immoral dangers, right, that might be more concentrated in a city, the very obvious immoral things, and say, we don't want to become like that. But what Babylon was tempted, tempting the Israelites with was not those things that were obviously evil, but things that were actually quite good that could become an ultimate thing, name, prosperity, a job, recognition, achievement, status, They were saying, Israel, come here, and we will be able to provide you those things. Now, studies show that Christians are known for being very judgmental about personal morality issues, about things that are obviously immoral, but indistinguishable from the larger culture's adoration of money, 
of celebrity, of status, of achievement. You see, what Christians have done historically is protest these obvious behavioral things, but yet have accommodated the culture in, th- in ways that are much more foundational and much more important. We say we're not like them regarding superficial things, but don't notice how similar we actually are regarding materialism, nationalism, selfishness, tribalism, and so forth. Jeremiah says instead, Israel, don't assimilate. But what does he say? How do you go about not assimilating? Do you stay outside the camp? Do you create your own enclave? No, Jeremiah says, move in. Move into the city. It's completely counterintuitive that you move into the city in order to live as God's people. Build houses, settle down, increase in number, or as the old, the old translations have it, multiply. This is the Hebrew term, term ravah, which is, goes way back all the way to Genesis, where God gives his first commands to the, his people and says, multiply, take up dominion over the earth, increase in number in order to bring my peace, in order to bring my shalom into all the world. That that's what's going on here. Move in in order to multiply my peace, my dominion, my reign, my healing. And the way that you do that is you don't stand outside, but you move in. You occupy the places that seem most unlikely for you to thrive in. The places that are actually in contrast to your values and opposed to the things that are most central. I think you can thrive there. That's what Jeremiah says. And this agenda is still in place for them. Your conquerors, take, your, take my presence, my peace, to your conquerors, to their city. Now, one offer is to assimilate. The other offer comes from within Israel itself, the false prophets. In verse 8, Jeremiah says, don't listen to the false prophets. What is he talking about? Just the previous chapter, there's these false prophets, Hananiah, that are saying, look... This is going to be over soon. God's going to put an end to this. It'll be a couple of years, so there's no reason for us to move into the city. There's no reason for us to build houses. There's no reason for us to do anything except what we would normally do in Jerusalem. Stay together, huddle down, create an enclave, right? That's where we're safe. That's where we can be protected is when we create a boundary, when we create a fortress. When fact, we should exploit Babylon. They're the ones that have enslaved us. So let's take what we can from them for our own tribe, for our own people. Let's gather resources from them while we're here and then take it back to Jerusalem where we belong. Joel Kotkin is another professor of urban development at Chapman University down in L.A. And what he says about what's going on in the world as he reads it, he says we are living in an age of tribes. What is happening all over Europe and even more and more in the United States, that tribes, he says, are competing for the state's wealth and the state's attention to strengthen their tribe's presence. He quotes Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor of Germany, and she says that Germany has utterly failed at multiculturalism. Whereas immigrants have come to the United States and have somewhat assimilated 
You don't have so many pockets of people that are in contrast to everyone else, that are seeking their own benefit and that are competing and are in conflict and so forth in the United States. In Germany, that exists everywhere and that they have failed at multiculturalism because they have a group, a number of tribes that are competing for the state's attention, the state's welfare, the state's medical care, and so forth. He says this, as as they have modernized and globalized, other races, Persians, Arabs, Brazilians, for just a few examples, have turned out to be far less cosmopolitan and more tribal. These nationalisms or tribalisms vary widely. Some, like China and Russia, are specifically racial in character. Others, such as Brazil, are remarkably multiracial. In some cases, historic resentments are at the base, but all are less interested in adopting globalized norms of free markets or capitalism than using state power through sovereign wealth funds and state-controlled corporations to increase their tribe's influence and wealth. The assimilationist lusts for power. What can I get from the city? I'm going to go into the city not to care for the city, not to love the city, but I'm going to go in to to gain something for myself. I'm going to build a name for myself. I'm going to go and gather resources so that I can deposit it in my own bank account. The tribalist says, I go to the city not to be a part of the cultural, commercial, social life of the city, but to gather resources from the city for my own tribe. What about you? Which of those two things do you most associate with? Do you most understand? Do you most see as a trend in your own life? Is it assimilation or is it tribalism and safety? Is it accommodation or is it living in an enclave because it appears that that's the safe way to live? How have you assimilated to the idols of the city, of the prevailing culture? How have you become indistinct or how have you maybe used the resources of the city to serve your own interest you've gone into the city you've lived here without caring deeply about its people and problems what about in town what about us how have we adopted the values and principles of the larger culture uncritically how have we turned inward Have we become a fortress to protect ourselves from the things that are happening out there? Jeremiah says in verse 4 that God says, I am still at work through my people. Why? What God says is, I have sent you into exile for a reason, that I am orchestrating the geopolitical events. I am bringing this to pass, that I have taken you into exile. What are the larger trends at work in our world today? What is God instrumenting that is very different, that as Christians we ought to be aware of? Well, there's a number of different people that have theorized about what's going on in the larger world. Thomas Friedman, you may be familiar with him, the New York Times columnist says the the world is flat, that in in a global marketplace that anyone can get in, that it's no longer just the American wealth the wealthy American that has access to things, but everyone is getting, gaining more and more access, that commercial competitors have an equal opportunity. So that's one perspective. James Fallows of The Atlantic, who I really enjoy reading his stuff, he says in, 
he doesn't completely throw that out, but he says instead the world is spiky, not flat, but spiky, that art, commerce, social capital, ingenuity, education are clustered in and around cities, and that a resident of Beijing has much more in common with a resident of Berlin than they do with those that live in the surrounding countrysides because so much of what is going on is, is spiked in cities. It's gathered in cities. People are seeking the same things. They have learned from the same institutions. They speak English and so forth. There are now over 300 cities around the world with a million people or more, and 50% of even the U.S. population is gathered within 40 of the largest cities. So why why am I telling you this? Why rehearse these stats? Why think about these observations that people are making? Just like God said to Israel, be aware of what I am doing. I have brought you into exile. I have orchestrated this whole thing. Shouldn't we, if we're Christians, step back and say, what is God doing around the world? What are the larger trends that we ought to be aware of as a church? And how do they lead us to serve in new and creative ways that maybe wouldn't have been true 50 years ago? We should ask why and what could I do to bring his presence into a rapidly urbanizing world? One of the coolest things that in town does, and this predates me, so I take no credit whatsoever. But when I came to in town, this is a small church, and yet there were five missionaries that were supported on the field to a fairly significant degree of their support. We now have six, and uh, Brian and Faith Jansen are about to, they're preparing now to leave in December to go to Taiwan. All of these people have thought very intentionally and very strategically about Who do I want to serve, and where do I want to live? And I'm going to be willing to uproot everything in order to go to those people. Because I love those people, I care for those people, and I care for them more than I do care for my own sense of security, my own sense of familiarity with place. I'm going to go, whatever it costs. They've each strategically asked who and where. Why should you be any different? Why should I be any different? If you're a Christian, then you are just as much on mission as those missionaries that we send all over the world. So why should we not be asking those very same questions? Where do I want to live and who do I want to serve? Who do I want to be a gift to by God? Why should we not be just as intentional, just as strategic about where we live and the people that we minister to? If you're a Christian, don't make a choice about where to live because of convenience, but because of conviction. Here's a radical idea. Instead of simply foraying into the city to go do projects, why don't we uproot and move there? Why don't we move to the places that are most in need? I know not everyone can do that, but some of us can. Some of us that come into the city and see these needs, some of us need to say, Maybe I ought to live there. Maybe I ought to move my resources, my family, my home, because this is where God's at work. This is where people are hurting. Missionaries we send overseas do that. Couldn't we do it here? Now, we absolutely need people everywhere. We need Christians and churches everywhere there are people. And hear me. 
I am in no way saying that ministry in Portland is any more valuable than ministry in Aloha or Sherwood or wherever you find yourself. But here's what I'd like to see happen, is that over the course of years, if you say that in town is my place, in town is the place that I've connected to, I believe in their mission, I believe in their vision, I believe in their philosophy of ministry. If that's what you're saying, then over years, not everyone can do this, but if you want to most connect, then maybe you ought to move in town. Think about that. In town is strategically planted in the city. And if this is your church and you see yourself here for the long haul, then consider that. Think about it. Not everyone can do it. There's lots of circumstances that would prevent you from even being able to ask that question. But consider it. Pray about it. Long, long first point, quick, medium-length second point, very quick third point. Remarkably simple. We talked about the perils of living in the city. What's the plan? What do you do if you move here? What do you do if you live here? Here's the plan. It's remarkably simple. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. That's the plan. That's what God wants to see happening in a city like Portland, is that his people take up residence, that they seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, that they fall in love with the city, because that's what you do with something you love. You care for it, you nurture it, you take care of it, you serve it. We have all heard of St. Augustine's Confessions. You may have even read it in a high school literature class. Um, his other great classic is City of God. And I haven't read it. It's, it's actually quite long, and I don't have the intellectual discipline to do it. But I've heard it's great. And... <laughs> A friend of mine basically summarizes his thesis as being pretty straightforward. And he puts, Augustine does, puts the whole frame of human history in in two pictures, in two cities. The city of God and the city of man. Now, up until the time of the prophets, up until Jeremiah was writing... what was the general prevailing wisdom was that these two cities were completely distinct. You have Jerusalem as... Um, as indicating the city of, of God, and you have Babylon as indicating the city of man. And these two cities were kept quite distinct. But what Jeremiah does is he lays these two cities on top of one another. They become coterminous. They share the same boundaries. They're the same, occupy the same geographic space, though very different values, very, very different perspectives about the world, very different spiritual outlook, very different purpose. Now, before, you had two separate cities, or maybe a little bit of overlap, like a a Venn diagram, you know, where you have the little overlapping shaded gray region, to where you live as a follower of God in the city of man, but you may kind of foray into the city. You may come in for resources, for shopping, for education, or whatever, but you quickly retreat it because it's dangerous there. You want to live where the, the safe people, the godly people are. Because the city of man is very perilous, and it's much more wise to live in sort of a a spiritually gated community. That's where you prosper. That's where you thrive. 
But Jeremiah gives a plan that's utterly different. You are to flourish economically, socially, spiritually in the midst of both cities. In the midst of a city of man that is fundamentally opposed to everything that you hold dear and deepest. This friend of mine summarizes Augustine this way. The city, city of man is the earthly city that is built on pride. That you go into the city to get a name, to get recognition, to achieve something that you can't achieve elsewhere. You go to get a self, to get a name, to get an identity. And I know I'm somebody because I've succeeded in this city. And this city, the residents of the city of man, are constantly exhausted because they're constantly chasing something that seems forever out of reach. The city of God is not built on the basis of pride, but on the basis of peace. And therefore, there's not exhaustion, but there's joy. Because the people, the residents of the city of God, have already achieved everything. Because they have God's eternal loveliness. That God has achieved for them what they could never achieve. That they have access to the God of creation. So they don't have to go into the city to gain and gather and protect their own interests or protect their tribe's interests. They go in with an abundance, with the resources that they can give away. People who already have a center, people who already have a name, have an identity, can live missionally through the gospel because you are eternally lovely before God. You're not threatened by people who are different from you, and you don't have to use them to build a name for yourself. If you understand that God has poured out everything for you, then you can begin to pour out your resources for others. If you understand that the gospel is not simply how to keep you safe and get you to heaven, but it's about God bringing his peace, his shalom, bringing his heavenly city to the earth, then you can begin to think strategically about how do I become an agent of that? How do I pull a piece of that into reality now? Christians dream dreams for their city that the city doesn't know it should have. In town, we should be dreaming big dreams for the city that Portland doesn't know it should have. The gospel makes us a church for the city. It's not simply that you are set free, but that one day God's heavenly city will come down. And if that's God's design, what we should be asking ourselves is how do we bring that reality into existence, though in small part, in some way now? What if in my personal life, what if in my family life, what if in my community group, my ministry team, we were to look for a specific way that God's intention of peace, of justice, of human flourishing, that we were to look for a place in our community, in our family, in our personal life that was broken, that wasn't existing, that justice was not flourishing, that peace was not in operation, that the gospel was not known, and say, how do I fix that? How do I bring the resources of my home group to bear upon that? How does my family interact with that need? Harvey Kahn, who is a missiologist and missionary to Korea, says, let people know that by giving their allegiance to Christ, they will be embarking on a great campaign to banish war and poverty and injustice, to set up a life where love 
and service and justice have taken the place of selfishness and power. Let people know that the church that sends out this manifesto plans to be an advance copy of the new world order it preaches. Stay, raise families, grow, multiply, build houses, get married, interact with the life of the city, enjoy the city, love and serve the city. That's what Jeremiah is saying. I have a dear friend who is a a pastor in the uptown area of New Orleans. And the interesting thing about Ray is that he came in while everyone else was leaving. He came in two weeks after Katrina into the war zone while everyone else was leaving. Understandably so, right? They'd lost their homes. It was flooded, so forth. A few weeks later, they had their first service of the reconstituted church It was about 150, now it was 15. He brought his family into a war zone, but he quickly fell in love with New Orleans, which is very easy to do, I might add. But in our profession as pastors, we find ourselves eating out quite a bit. It's both the delight and the the danger. You have to be careful because you're eating out constantly. And Portland, like uh, New Orleans, has has a very compact urban grid. There's, there's restaurants on every corner. And so what Ray decided is that the way to learn New Orleans, the way to fall in love with New Orleans was through its restaurants. And so he counted up all of the non-chain restaurants in Orleans Parish and said, I'm going to eat at every single one of those. <laughs> a little self-interested there, right? But It was a way to learn the city because what he found was that New Orleans functions around its restaurants and that people go to lunch for two and a half hours because they love food and they love conversation. And Ray thought, that's how I fall in love with New Orleans. That's how I learn it as an outsider. So he started on a quest, and there were 615 restaurants. He's now at 608. And I've eaten at two of them with him. And... It's, it's great to see his enthusiasm, not just about the food, but about the people and the cultural life of New Orleans. And there, there's a film company that's now making a movie about this quest called The Man Who Ate New Orleans. <laughs> and if you talk to Ray, he is as much of an expert on the city, both its beauty as well as its brokenness, both its delights as well as its idolatries. He knows that city better than anyone as well as anyone who's grown up there their entire life. Jeremiah is saying, far from being suspicious of the city, far from standing outside and avoiding city life, that God wants you to fall in love with the city that you inhabit. I hope it's Portland, but it may be somewhere outside, or you may be visiting from a long way off. Fall in love with your city if you want to serve it, if you're a Christian. The reason that Ray eats on one hand is very similar to the reason that everyone else in New Orleans eats. They love good food and they love conversation. But on the other hand, it's absolutely staggeringly different because what Ray eats for is not a distraction. It's not simply to find a piece of pleasure in a broken, fallen, sad world. But he eats, he takes part in this pleasurable experience as a window into the next world. He says, wow, if this Creole cooking is so good here, what will it be like in heaven? 
if, if this pleasure is but a taste of what is coming, I want to share that joy with others. And he takes opportunities around the table to talk about what he does, to talk about why this is just but a taste of what's coming. It's a beautiful thing to fall in love with your city in a way that you love the rhythms, you love the colors, you love the sights, you love the people of your town. Because when you do that, you begin to serve it. Now finally, power. And I know I need to end quickly. How do we get the power? How do we begin to do that? How do we begin to love the places that you live? If you live in Portland, how do you begin to fall in love with it and therefore serve it? How do you begin to see it as an opportunity to bring your resources to bear upon problems rather than going into the city to gain and to get and to gather for yourself? We have to see what God is ultimately after. And what he's ultimately after is shalom. It's shalom. It's one of those loaded words in Scripture that we don't have an English word that quite translates it. We get peace, and that's part of it. But shalom is much bigger. It's full human flourishing. It's you being able to live exactly according to, who, to how God made you. It's living in perfect harmony with the creation around you and with the people around you. That's what shalom is. And the only way that you will be willing to live for other people's shalom, for other people's good, is when you realize that God has done everything to seek yours. When God, when you realize that God has sent his son to grant you shalom, to grant you peace, to grant you rest, then you begin to meditate on that and have the resources to try and do that for other people. The only way that you learn to love those who you defer with in practices and principles and priorities is when you realize that though you deferred from God in all of those categories, that he sought you out anyway, that he brought shalom to you in spite of that. Now, this passage in Jeremiah is obviously part of a larger story, this larger drama of what God is doing in the world and how he is responding to human sin. It's a larger drama of people removing themselves from God's presence and saying, God, I want you to stay out of my life. I'm fine on my own. And him continuing to pursue them. Let me save you from yourself. I have a dream for you that you don't know that you should have. I see the places in your heart and in your life that are aching for healing, and I can bring that to you. When we begin to see that that's how God has treated and relates to us constantly, we can begin to seek that for other people. We read the passage, Luke 19. Jesus is outside of the city. This is the center of the story. This larger story that Jeremiah is telling is that one day Jesus will come. And he doesn't name him. He says a redeemer. He says a messiah. There's a coming one that will bring this redemption to bear. Jesus, outside the city, is praying and weeping over the city, this city that is full of religious externality, full of religious holiness, and yet he's weeping over the city because it's absolutely lost. It's a city that is very religious that will very soon kick him out of the city, and put him on a cross. Friends, you realize that he prays for the city and it rejects him. He becomes an outsider so that others can be 
insiders. He gets thrown out of the city so that you can be brought in. That's the story that Jeremiah is telling, ultimately. That's what's at the center of why we should care as in town about the city. It's that Jesus was an outcast so that you can be brought in. So therefore, why not think about bringing others in? Why not think about bringing your resources to bear upon the needs of the city just as God has brought his resources to bear upon yours? That's the, that's the story that we tell. That's why the gospel makes us a church for the city. If you understand it, you can't help it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We pray that it would reverberate in our hearts. We pray that there would not be guilt that comes from this uh, passage, but there would be, or obligation, but there would be excitement and enthusiasm to share and to serve wherever you have us right now. Father, I pray that in town would be a place that not only says that we care for the city, that we have been strategically planted here, but that we would actually excel at doing what you have called us to do. Would you give us the resources to do that? Give us the encouragement, the enthusiasm, and give us love for one another and love for those who are outside. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.